What are you going to do if we find them? Oh, twist their arms a bit to let me take them back to their own planet. I hope they have arms to twist. I'll find something. Oh, no. Braveheart, Chip. It's February 13th. Welcome to This Week in Time Travel. We are less than a week away from the launch of Gallifrey One, and I'm going to see you live and in person over there, Alyssa. I will be seeing you live and in person too, Chip, which means everybody who's listening to this, keep yourself healthy, get hand sanitizer, and please just wash your hands constantly because Concrud is going to be real awful this year, and I am not getting it. I tell you, it is not happening. I'm actually going to be attending the convention in a bubble suit. Well, that will be interesting. I do dress up for the convention one night a week. I'm just going to do it all the way around, and it's going to be just basically hermetically sealed bubble wrap. I can't fault you. That sounds like a really good plan, actually. Aha. Uh-huh. So uh, we have news this week, which is a little different from recent weeks. The Chibnall administration is still on complete classified lockdown, but we do have some rumors that Doctor Who could be moving to Sunday night. Unfortunately, those rumors came from the UK Mirror, which is not exactly an authoritative source. But the theory is, and their supposed inside uh, sources Mm -hmm. say that, uh, I heard that, hmm, I heard that Marge Simpson-like growl there. Um, Those of you listening can't see my face, but this is my skeptical face. Yeah. So the theory is that dealing with Strictly Come Dancing has been an issue for the ratings, which have declined somewhat significantly since, say, 2014, 2015, whatever. And so to give Doctor Who a boost in the ratings, they would theoretically be moving it to Sunday night. I share your skeptical face. I also wonder how much of a difference this would make for those of us in countries that are not British. I don't think that it would work out too great for Australians or Canadians or USAans to be not able to watch the show until Sunday night in North America or the Monday for Australia. I don't know. If this even is accurate, do you think it would affect how popular or how Doctor Who's ratings are in America? I mean, there's a ton of hypotheticals here. Part of it is what agreements do they get set up with their international partners? Um, some, you know, we've got BBC America, which makes things slightly different for those of us in the United States. But there are a ton of other regional partners that they're working with, and they have a lot of flexibility to set their own schedule. And some misguided executives may think that just waiting a long period of time until they can put it in a better hour will do better for fans. What it's going to do is it's going to set up a system in which those people who are in the UK get to watch it first, and everybody else is going to be pushed increasingly into pirating the episode because the second it airs in the UK, there are spoilers everywhere. Americans who are very serious about watching Doctor Who without spoilers cannot get onto the internet as soon as it airs in the UK. Like, 
it is a common thing on my Twitter timeline to see all of the North Americans and Australians go, signing off, see you guys when it airs here, because this is the world of the internet that we live in nowadays. Theoretically, I don't think it would require anything too dramatically different than what exists currently, in which people get it shortly after airing in the UK. My big fear is that executives who have no conception of what international fandom and TV viewing is like now are going to decide to hold it and release it at a different time because they think it will give them better ratings. And what we've seen increasingly is that it won't and it doesn't. Class is a perfect example of this. Anyone who was serious about watching Class had pirated it long before it aired in the U.S. due to BBC America's frankly astounding decision to air it months after it aired in the U.K. I think that, you know, do what you have to do for U.K. ratings, but do not hold it back from people internationally because that would be a colossally terrible move. It would split international fandom in a way that would just basically halt any movement or growth in terms of the series. You want to know why it took off in the U.S. at the time it did? It's not just that Matt Smith was popular and good. It's that there was a effort to get the episodes airing in the U.S., pretty consistently with when they were airing in the UK, because that's what made it possible for people to watch it together in a community and allow the fandom to grow, because fandoms are international. TV communities are international. I have a lot of feelings about this, but basically there is too much error room. There is too much room for stupid. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I hear you. Uh, I think that they do have to do whatever they need to do for British ratings because Doctor Who is a British show made for a British market and yep. by far the largest percentage of fans of Doctor Who are in Britain. Um, we are pleasant add-ons, but we're becoming increasingly important pleasant add-ons and the money that BBC Worldwide and BBC America put into Doctor Who is pretty darn significant. So if the show does move to Sundays, I think it's going to have to move to Sundays in the States along with it. And I suspect that that would not be great for the show here, but we'll just have to see how it all works out. Let's move from the future to the past to several, several decades in the past and a little story called The Enemy of the World that was released after having been discovered in a very, very vanilla DVD and um, iTunes setup, but we didn't care because it was missing Doctor Who that came back to us and damn, but Patrick Troughton was amazing in it. I had gotten the sense that The BBC was done with value-added material. And yet, this news seems to indicate that they've found some value in VAM. A new special edition of The Enemy of the World is on the way. It has even more restoration. I mean, the episodes were restored prior to the original release, but the restoration team has gone back yet again to make it look even more spiffy. There's an interview with Philip Morris, who found the story in Africa, along with The Web of Fear, a new documentary remembering Deborah Watling, and 
episode commentaries that are moderated by my friend and longtime associate of the Tachyon TV podcast. And oh, let's not mention uh, British television producer Simon Harris. So I am really looking forward to this one. It's also got a snazzy new DVD cover. And that's the value-added material I'm really a sucker for. Give me a really pretty DVD cover, and I like displaying that in my home. So Enemy of the World is one of my favorite Troughton stories. I'm really, really excited for this, and I look forward to seeing an even spiffier version of the story. We are going to be at Regeneration Who next month, provided a meteor doesn't fall on me. And we were looking forward to seeing Pearl Mackey there, but she got cast in a play, and it just didn't work out. She was also a potential guest at Gallifrey One, and that didn't work out. Third time the charm, maybe? Third time is the charm, maybe. Pearl Mackey is going to be at Chicago TARDIS currently. That could change. Girl's real talented, and she's getting cast in a lot of plays. So, fingers crossed for those of you going to Chicago TARDIS that Pearl Mackey will actually be there because she seems charming and delightful. And frankly, I would really, really, really like to see her at a convention. And I'm very sad that I missed out on my two opportunities this year. I'm maybe be able to go to Chicago TARDIS, but incredibly unlikely. So keeping my eye on it. And those of you who do get to see Pearl Mackey, I just hope you have the best time. It would be cause for Thanksgiving if you could make it. Mm-hmm. And finally, in our news rundown, Obverse Books is publishing a second target for Tommy. That's a fundraiser for writer Tommy Donbavan, who is fighting cancer right now. This collection is particularly noteworthy because Stephen Moffat is contributing excerpts from his draft script from The Day of the Doctor back when he thought Christopher Eccleston was going to be in it. I'm fascinated to see what that story is going to be like. I really would love to see where, what direction that he was going to take Eccleston's doctor in, uh, how that fits into the overall plot of saving Gallifrey. And yeah, I'm just intrigued as all heck about that. Likewise, likewise. I'm one of the holdouts who, as wonderful as John Hurt was, I'm a bit of a stick in the mud that so much changed in Doctor Who as a result of John Hurt's casting. You know, the gimmick of the 12th Doctor requiring special dispensation from Gallifrey because they'd thrown in another regeneration there, things like that, feels, this is a tautology, but feels kind of gimmicky to me. I really want to know what it would have been like with Christopher Eccleston in that episode. I just really want to know. I'm just looking forward to reading it and imagining Christopher Eccleston's voice in my mind, just delivering the heck out of those lines. So looking forward to seeing that when it does come out. So we are going to resume our conversation about every doctor, all the doctors, doctors in sequence, doctors without end, amen, uh, <laughs> with Graham Burke from Reality Bomb Podcast co-writer and writer and editor of so much Doctor Who goodness and uh, he's been on our podcast a couple of times in our received fan wisdom segment we'll be right back with Graham this week on the incomparable network I joined the flagship show to celebrate the second season of NBC's forking great comedy the good place it's game night for the incomparable game show as Anthony Johnston tortures a bunch of North Americans with the British edition of Trivial Pursuit from the 1980s. Good Lord. 
And Tim Goodman thinks we may be living in a golden age for televised science fiction and fantasy on TV Talk Machine. All this and more at theincomparable.com. And we're back on This Week in Time Travel, and we're going to open this recap of The Fifth Doctor with an admission. Confession time. Here's what I got. The Fifth Doctor I have always loved, and right from the beginning, my first time with the college science fiction club, when I said I was a Fifth Doctor fan, I remember this old hanger-on at the science fiction club who had long since graduated and still kept coming to the meetings, immediately braze, WIMP! The Fifth Doctor is not beloved. The Fifth oh, Doctor is not beloved. Chip. And this is this is what steeled me for um, future experiences such as liking The End of Time when everybody else uh, mocked it. You know, I began to develop a thick fandom skin just from appreciating The Fifth Doctor. Similarly, someone who appreciates The Fifth Doctor, although I don't know if it's led to any emotional trauma, is Graham Burke. Hello. Uh, no, no emotional trauma as near as I've been able to tell um, yet. Ah, nah. No, no, no whatsoever. <laughs> so Graham is back with us after having spent some time with us in the uh, Department of Received Fan Wisdom. And perhaps this is appropriate for him to be back with the Fifth Doctor as well. <laughs> How is the Fifth Doctor regarded by Doctor Who fandom? Better than he used to be. I think the presence of younger doctors like uh, David Tennant and Matt Smith did a lot to sort of rehabilitate his his reputation. But I, I remember a time, because I'm old, back in the early 2000s when uh, Doctor Who magazine's uh, reviewer reviewed the case of Androzani, and and the reviewer actually said straight up, I, "I've never, I've always sort of thought that Davison was basically miscast in the role." I'm like, going, "Then why are you reviewing his DVDs? Why have you not basically kind of given that over to someone else? Because clearly you've indicated you're not willing to give the guy a chance." But the thing was, it was so prevalent in fandom uh, that you know. He wasn't Tom Baker. And I I, th- I have to thank Stephen Moffat because I think time crash is basically the point at which it became okay to like the Fifth Doctor. And I, I'm very grateful to him for that. Alyssa, what's your take on the Fifth Doctor? So the Fifth Doctor is the one that I have the most confused feelings on. Uh, I started watching the Fifth Doctor at the very beginning of the time that I was just getting into classic Who. So this was a few years ago, and watching it as an American viewer at that time was a really sort of convoluted experience. There were a few of the Fifth Doctor stories on U.S. Netflix. This was back when it was still available on U.S. Netflix. I had also done a stint studying abroad at that time, so I'd seen a few of his episodes on UK Netflix um, when there were uh, some of his stories available there. And then I was getting DVDs shared with me and I was getting other things shared with me. And so I was watching Davison all over the flipping place. To give you an idea of how confused I was about this, I asked for recommendations of like best Fifth Doctor stories to watch. And the one I started with was Caves of Androzani. Like, that was the first Davison story that I started with because. Oh, when that's I asked totally for best, representative. When I started, when I asked yeah. for best episodes, so they, they said that and like I got it, but like not a good one to start with, maybe. So 
he's a very interesting doctor. Um, I was watching it at a time where there was some other fans watching uh, his episodes on Tumblr, and there was a really interesting small community that was talking about it together at the time. So for me, he's like dad doctor. Like, he is the one that I, like, he never struck me as being like the young doctor because when I started watching, Matt Smith was already there and he was the one controversial for being the youngest doctor. When I started watching, Davison felt like dad doctor. It was like, I'm in the TARDIS. I have all of these kids. How did I end up with all of these kids? He's sort of stressed and anxious about all of these companions that he has with him at the time. So he was always a very fascinating character to me. But I think I have a very different perspective than most people because at the time I started watching, I was so brand new to the series that I didn't have any of the received wisdom on him. I had no coherent order in which I was watching his stories. And I was in a small, isolated community that had a very different take on him than the rest of fandom's, you know, sort of received take on him is. So when I hear about all these sorts of things about Davison's Doctor, I'm frankly amazed because it's so different than how I first started to uh, interpret him. I'm possibly a very superficial Doctor Who fan in some respects. Peter Davison hits me in the same way that David Tennant hits me. Uh, And like time crash is just like peak Doctor Who for me all of a sudden. But there is something about the (laughs) youthfulness of Peter Davison and of David Tennant and the sort of the approachability of some say, you know, the the pleasant open face is the Terrence Dixism for the fifth doctor. But when I saw the fourth doctor here and there on PBS when I was a kid, he was off-putting and sort of vaguely unpleasant. As tetchy as the fifth doctor is, he just seems approachable. He seems not at all threatening. He seems like he could potentially be your pal. That's on the surface. Uh, deeper down, he's a little more uh, problematic and uh, persnickety. I bought in. That was my doctor when I was a kid. And uh, that was the entirety of Doctor Who for me when they moved on to Colin Baker. Um, it just wasn't the same. Is Peter Davison just sort of comfortable Doctor Who? I don't know about that. I think he's – I think in many ways uh, there was a large ex- amount of backlash to him because I think comfortable Doctor Who was was Tom Baker. I think maybe he's an AM radio doctor, I guess. Wow. To your – you're saying – I don't necessarily think so. I think the joy of Peter Davison's doctor is that there is a certain – easiness that he sort of brings to the role but actually there's a way more going on under the surface and 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 there's way more going on in how Davison portrays him and there's way more going on with with that doctor period so I, I think it's sort of like one of those songs that you know you think would be played on AM radio and then you get to, to it and you realize oh my god the instrumentation on this is, is intense and this is more of a late night FM kind of thing but anyways enough about radio formats um, and Doctor <laughs> Who but, but I, I think it's something like that. I think there is a certain sort of surface kind of ease with him. I think there is a certain kind of he dresses in cricket whites and, you know, he, he he's cute. But I think there's way more to him when you get further down. 
I think one of the things that defines the fifth doctor for me is sort of his cadre of companions, um, because he has a lot of different companions that he ends up with during his time. He inherits Nyssa, Tegan, and Adric from the fourth doctor, and they're sort of the core of his group um, up until Earthshock, um, in which you have sort of the first really controversial, traumatic companion departure. Then you get Turlo in, and he's a very fascinating companion because I think he's the closest we get to like a, you know, genuinely morally complicated companion for a very long time. Like he's a person that seems very ill-suited to be a Doctor Who companion in many ways. And then you get into Perry, who leads up into the Sixth Doctor and where you get into some very interesting and kind of problematic companion dynamics. So I wanted to talk a little bit about sort of how this group of companions defines the fifth doctor as he moves through his tenure. Graham, do you think that the companions that he has really sort of defines different moments during his tenure and affect how we interpret the fifth doctor? It's tricky. For me, I kind of look upon the Fifth Doctor's companions very much as a situation of, you know, if you can't find the one you love, then love the one you're with. Um, <laughs> in its own way. Because in many ways, I, I, I mean, I remember growing up as a teenager and watching it, and I, I never got why did the doctor put up with Tegan and why Tegan put up with the doctor? And I think the older I got and the more adult my relationships became, the more I realized this is actually a very, very typical human relationship in many ways. It's, it's, there, there are things that drive them crazy about each other, but there's things that obviously keep them together in, in some way. I think it's a fascinating relationship. And I think both actors are very much on their game. I think, uh, I think Janet Fielding's a marvelously underrated actress. I, I always feel it's, it's, it's a shame that she, her, her acting career didn't have the same sort of upward trajectory as a Helen Mirren, because I think she had those acting chops. Uh, and so watching her interact with Davison, who I think is also a, sim a heavyweight actor. I think they really brought it together well. And, and his her departure in, in Resurrection of the Daleks, you know, he the Doctor looks as though he's had something ripped out of him as a result of it. And he, I just love that kind of complexity of relationships. So yes, I guess to answer your question, yes, it, it's interesting because I think they each sort of have different facets of the doctor and they're each sort of show a certain, you know, kind of range of the complexity of human relationships. So you have uh, an Adric who is sort of the, the tag along that you don't really want to ha hang out with, but it is there. Or you have Nissa, who's the one that you like being with, and you have Tegan, who's the really complex one, and you have you have Turlo, who has ulterior motives, but you know you, you kind of hope that he'll work out. And and yeah, so I think all of them kind of bring a certain level of complexity. And 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 complexity and Doctor Who companions are not necessarily two words I use together frequently with with when it comes to Doctor Who in the in the nineteen eighties, but I. I I think that it works well in sort of describing the relationships here. So I think you've got more than one or two books describing some uh, highlights and lowlights in the Fifth Doctor's era. Which episodes would you say were the best written ones that uh, gave Peter Davison a real good place to shine? 
everyone's going to go to the case of Androzani, and I'll, I'll, so I'll, I'll give you guys some space to go talk about that one. So I'll talk about a couple of the deeper cuts of, uh, <laughs> of Peter Davison, uh, to coin a phrase. I think, uh, for example, I think uh, Frontios is a really, really wonderful story. I was just actually watching it today, and it's, it's really great because it gives Davison some actual chance to actually do some comedy, and he's actually really great with it. And it's a story set in the sort of... Uh, very, very far future, and and there's a monster in it that's supposedly supposed to be very bad, but I actually think it's actually quite well designed for the 1980s. And there's just a lot of really great character development going on. And Davison gets some wonderful moments where he gets to be steely, and he gets to he gets to really sort of show some flint, and it's and it's 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 really great. Though my favorite Peter Davison story for Davison as an actor is is Earthshock, um, which is I think it's his best story. I, I it's it's a story. That is very paradoxical because it's it's in many ways a Doctor Who story where the Doctor loses and you know Adric dies. The Cybermen are basically just dispersed; they're not defeated. Uh, nothing quite goes right according to plan. But up until about halfway through Episode Three, it really is kind of following the general kind of Doctor Who you know thrills, spills, monsters, everything, and all of a sudden all the bottom falls out. And and Davison is just wonderful throughout that story. There's a whole sequence where he's diffusing a bomb. And every, it is such a tense sequence. It's beautifully directed by Peter Grimway. But Davison brings so much to that scene. He's he just brings so much intensity and and so much so much to it that you really believe that the, the tension. And so and he's wonderful in that. And he's wonderful at the very end when when you know Ad, the look on his face when Adric when he realizes Adric's dead is is just is just heartbreaking. So yeah, Urshock would be my probably my my go to place. Frontiers is another good one. Enlightenment's a great one. I, uh, Modern and Dead is, is is very good. I mean, I mean, I think the great thing about Davison is is that even in badly written stories, and he has quite a share of them, he finds good moments in them, and and he does great things in them. So he's one of those doctors who um, they. Someone once said that Matt Smith was script proof, and I don't actually think that's true of Matt Smith, but I actually think it's quite true of Peter Davison. Yeah, I think Peter Davison has uh, kind of. It feels like almost the most uneven run because he has some really, truly exceptional stories and does some incredible work with them. But he also has things like The King's Demons, which is just a very, very confusing, odd story, not not terribly great. I think that's probably one of the reasons I feel kind of confused about him because other doctors, I have strong feelings about like seasons as a whole um, or, you know, different times of their tenure. But Davison feels a little bit more all over the place to me that he has a lot of really good and some real interesting ones. I do want to throw uh, another shout out to Enlightenment, which is to this day one of only two episodes to be both written and directed by a woman. It was written by Barbara Clegg and directed by Fiona Cumming. So one of only two, still uh, very sort of revolutionary in that aspect. I think it's one of my favorite Tegan stories as well. She has quite a lot to do in that story. And I think Janet Fielding really does some incredible work with her. I'm going to go out and say the unpopular opinion, which I'm sure is going to get us some very interesting Twitter mentions. I am not actually a huge fan of Caves of Androzani. I think that there is about half the story that is incredibly well done, that it has some interesting 
political and economic messages that it does some pretty interesting work with. Corporation control does some interesting work with sort of autonomous working forces and how that impacts economies moving forward. And then half the story is like an even more regressive version of The Phantom of the Opera. And the entire use of Perry in Caves of Androzani drives me up a wall every single time. I stick out here on my uncomfortable, unpopular opinion ledge of uh, I, I have watched it several times uh, and I I get why people like it. But I'm not in that camp. I'm I'm over here on my ledge. Well, I th- I think that ledge is getting increasingly crowded. I think uh, Caves of Androzani is sort of being reevaluated lately. Um, our friends at Doctor Who: The Writers Room, uh, Kyle Anderson and Eric Stadnick, are both fairly mild on it. They consider it a well-directed uh, story, but they're not fans of the script. It's it's a very interesting st- story in some in some respects. I think. What what trips me up, and I've been thinking a lot more about this because in preparation for this, I listened uh, on Verity Podcast to the Feminism and Doctor Who panel that was at Chicago TARDIS with Janet Fielding. Um, and Janet Fielding is still to this day, I think, one of the actresses who has the most fascinating, in-depth perspective on her role in Doctor Who and how that fits into broader industry dynamics. And one of the things she talked about was even when companions didn't scream, they were all screamers, as in they were all there to get in danger, to raise the stakes for the Doctor. And that's really Perry's entire role in this story. She is there to be sort of a lusted after object and she's also there to just constantly be in danger and it's there there's just not a lot that's good or interesting there to work with it's a very regressive dynamic and it it's unfortunately one of the things that plagues perry during the long term I like the story, but I'm not. I think your point is 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 a very very fair one, Alyssa. So I I I have I have nothing to add. <laughs> <laughs> Graham, on your show Reality Bomb, you have a segment called mm-hmm. Gallery of the Underrated, mm-hmm. and one of your favorite techniques is after somebody has been saying great things about this underrated episode of Doctor Who, you bring out a quote. And you ask them to respond to it. Okay. So I, 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 if this is a quote from Robert Smith, I'm walking. But that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and thus ends this segment of this week in time travel. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs> so in the book, the doctors are in. Um, co-author Robert Smith question mark says. I applaud John Nathan Turner for succeeding at what he tried to do. The Fifth Doctor is almost nothing like his predecessor, and that probably ensured the survival of the series, but in trying to see that contrast through, the Fifth is so flawed and vulnerable that it's actually difficult to watch at times. Without Peter Davison, this era would be a god-awful mess, with practically no redeeming features. Fortunately, they had a great actor on hand, one who almost saved the entire thing by playing it subtle. Almost. That was the parting shot in the Fifth Doctor overview. That was his rebuttal to you. Uh, Graham, what do you think of that statement? (laughs) (laughs) I 
you know, at the time, I think I said to Robert, you know, I, I respect his wrongness and hope that, you know, he sits and reflects on his wrongness. Um, <laughs> I don't think it's disastrous. I think I think what Davison actually brings is a freshly needed perspective to Doctor to acting in Doctor Who, which is which is that Doctor Who doesn't actually have to be always personality driven acting. It can actually be proper character acting, which is something that had kind of gotten forgotten after Troughton and Hartnell, I think. And I think he kind of brought it back to that. And I think, you know, there is so much that, uh, and, and maybe it would be a god awful mess with it with, without him. He, Robert's actually probably quite right about that. I mean, I mean, I think, I think when you have an actor who just basically reads the word on the page, not naming the next actor in the role, that you know, that the story that that the, the variable quality of the stories really shows through. I so I and I do think that part of it was that Davison did have a very higher consciousness of this is I'm the lead of the show and this is this is and this is how I want to play the doctor that overrides anything um and, and so so I think there's a survival instinct in it but I don't think that's the fault of that particular doctor I think I think the idea is actually relatively sound of actually having a series of contrasts uh to Tom Baker I think it becomes perhaps more problematic down the road but in its nature i think a more vulnerable doctor a doctor who has to work harder to actually achieve victory is a doctor who has to sort of a doctor who feels more is not a bad thing i i love tom baker he is the doctor i grew up with he is he is my doctor in many ways but there is something to be said for having a doctor who who is capable of sort of looking another character in the eyes and and sort of interact with them like another person which is something that the fourth doctor had long ceased doing <laughs> in his later seasons and i say this as someone who thinks season 17 is a paragon of doctor who history um but you know i i think i think so i do think that there is a lot to be said for the reinvention that happens with doctor who then um i do but I do concede that, you know, that other actors might have made more of a hash of it. But, you know, thankfully, we got Peter Davison and not Richard Griffiths in the role. So I want to circle back to some of the best episodes. But I want to keep in mind, what's the best episode for a beginner? Let's not sabotage someone like somebody sabotaged me by saying, start with Caves of Androzani. That is a great introduction to the Fifth Doctor. So what would be your top one or two episodes to get somebody into Peter Davison's run on Doctor Who? I'm going to go with something that's going to seem really kind of facile in a way, but I'd go with the visitation. I remember I watched the visitation in a house uh, in my in my aunt and uncle's house in, in when I was growing up. Uh, I had I had, there had been a making of Doctor Who book which talked about the making of the visitation, so I was really excited to finally watch it. And so I had to make sure that I was able to you know be able to get TV space to go watch it because we were visiting my aunt and uncle that weekend. And when it was on, and suddenly I had the whole house of people kind of watching it because I was making them not watch sports on a Saturday afternoon. Um, and, <laughs> and so they all watched it and they all really enjoyed it, actually. Uh, and, and, and my aunt and uncle were not people who would have lied to me if they, if they, hadn't, if they hadn't actually been delighted by it. Um, so I, think, I think there's something very breezy and very easy going about it. It's a very, very simple story. I think it has the most sarcastic alien in Doctor Who history as the monster, which is great. The fifth Doctor gets really pissed off in the fourth episode, and you get some really, really sarcastic banter from him. Um, 
uh, there's a lot to like about it. And it, it's sort of, and I always find the Doctor Who stories where he sort of spends more time with someone else who's not the actual companions often works well. Um, and this one, they have Richard Mace play, uh, which is, which is a great character. So yeah, there's a lot, to, I think there's a lot going for the visitation personally as a starter episode. Mm-hmm. Chip, what about you? There's a perverse part of me that wants to say Castro Valva, but I'm just beating that part into submission because no, that that's not right <laughs> at all. <laughs> I genuinely don't know. I love the breadth of Peter Davison's run, but I don't point to one particular episode as just sort of a stellar standout. I see fascinating stuff in so many of them, but Caves of Androzani super well directed but a regeneration episode and some iffy parts of the script no modern undead it's one of the first really playful time travel as an actual gimmick kinds of things but but Nissa and Tegan think that modern is the doctor and that's I, I have issues with that you know I can't point to one I, I, I can't quite no no I can point to one Damn it. It's just a roller coaster with you right now, Chip. Jesus. The, fi- the five Shut doctors. Up, you I stole the, mine. I give the nod to the five doctors because <sighs> as crowded as it is, the fifth doctor is very much the fifth doctor. He's very much his own man, even when he is mind controlled. Yeah, the five doctors. So I was going to say that. The reason, though, that I was going to say The Five Doctors is because I would never recommend that somebody brand new to Classic Who start with The Fifth Doctor. I just don't think there's any good real beginners episodes with that. So if I'm starting somebody on another Doctor and then I want to get them into The Fifth Doctor, The Five Doctors is really a good spot for that because there's a Doctor they already know and like there. And then there's a bunch of new doctors. I actually recommend the five doctors as being like a really good starting place for anyone who's brand new to Classic Who because there's a lot of different doctors in there and you can sort of get an idea for at least a few of them about which eras of Doctor Who you might be interested in. Uh, Which doctor do you connect with? Which doctor are you laughing with more in this story? Also, I just really love all of the doctors insulting each other. It's just kind of the greatest thing about that story. And it's also one of the only multi-doctor stories that Peter Davison gets because by the time the five doctors comes around, you know, you've already had the first three uh, in their multi-doctor adventure together. You get two and six later. And uh, I count the five-ish doctors as being a multi-doctor story. I'm probably alone in that. It's just a delightful bit of Doctor Who nostalgia and fun. So I love it. And I'm going to count it anyways. But it's it's just sort of a, a fun little jaunt that is, I think, great for anyone looking to fall in love with classic Who. All right. Do we have any closing thoughts on the fifth doctor? I, he's got a pleasant open face. I'd like to end where we began. The one thing I didn't talk about what I love about uh, The Fifth Doctor is that re-watching uh, a bunch of his stories in preparation for this, I was I was taken by the fact that the way he's portrayed is he's – one of the – if I was to do one of my one-word one word descriptions from – like I do in Reality Bomb for reviewing stories, I'd probably use thoughtful. I'm amazed at how thoughtful he is. The Fifth Doctor is a man who thinks a lot about things and is trying to figure it out as he goes along. And, and I like that. 
I like that kind of appeal to being an intellectual, that you don't picture the tall, blonde Kendall of, a, 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 of an action figure <laughs> having as a trait, which is, I think, speaks really well to what Davison brought to the role, I think, is that, is that you know, the, it, there's all these sort of halting things where he's, he's almost thinking too fast to get it out and he's, and he's, and he's processing it. And it's something I really, really love and that he sort of is, he's a guy who's always thinking about what, what he's, what's going on. And I love that kind of characteristic about him. And I, it's, it struck me when I was watching this, this is one of those, re, this is one of those unique characteristics of a doctor that I don't, I don't think I've seen carry over to other ones because, you know, people like the, the 10th doctor sort of does it with a lot of swagger. And, and I think the 12th, the 11th doctor is more in Troughton mode, sort of very, very quiet. But I think that's sort of, yeah, that sort of halting kind of thoughtful quality is what I love about him. So there's a good closing thought. That was a very beautiful thought, but I would like to go back to the idea of Davison being the tall, blonde Ken doll of the Doctors. <laughs> if Gallifrey One wasn't literally this coming weekend, I would want that on a ribbon now. <laughs> it's nice to be quoted on a ribbon, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> all right, Graham, so you came right into now. this podcast and you broke my co-host. <laughs> well... It had to happen eventually, I guess. <laughs> I'll get myself back together before we do the Reality Bomb live show at Galley. I appreciate that. <laughs> and that is happening on the Saturday night. That's right. Saturday night at 9 o'clock. So if you're listening to this podcast and you're coming to Gallifrey One, you know where you need to be on Saturday night. Graham, thank you for joining us on this week in time travel once more. Happy to be a part of it. Well, next week we're going to take a little bit of a break on our Doctor's Recap, don't you think? I think we are going to be just a little bit busy with Gallifrey One. So we'll be reporting from Gallifrey One, and we'll be talking to some of our friends, some of the guests, having all kinds of fun, and giving those of you who aren't able to make it to that convention a taste of what it's like, and we hope that you'll enjoy the time with us. That's it for us today, though, folks. You can find us online at thisweekintimetravel.com. We're also on Twitter at DRWhoThisWeek. You can find Chip on Twitter at numeral2minutetimelord. You can find me on Twitter and Tumblr at Feminism, And you can find our guest, Graham Burke, at Graham Burke, G-R-A-E-M-E-B-U-R-K. And also RealityBombPC on Twitter. That's all one word. And you can find us on Facebook, too. This Week in Time Travel is hosted on the Incomparable Network. You can support our show by becoming a member and ticking the box for This Week in Time Travel and any other Incomparable shows you like at theincomparable.com slash members. Thanks to Christopher Breen for our theme music and to David J. Lohr for our artwork. And we will talk to you next time from Los Angeles on This Week in Time Travel. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.